bread and the cup. The most common elements, really, of life. Certainly life in the first century. And yet down through the ages, the people of God gathered all around this globe partake of these elements together, and in doing so, they proclaim the reality of the finished crosswork of Jesus Christ. Beloved, as we take together, may the Spirit of God renew your faith this morning. Let's eat. great king of Israel, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes says there's no end to the number of books that are written, to which I would add the addition or the addendum that says, and most of them shouldn't be. There are continually outpouring of literary product, particularly in the world of theology and biblical studies and much of it, they should have saved the tree and not have written it. But there are some very fine books out there, and one of those very fine books is written by a pastor up in Minneapolis by the name of John Piper, and it's entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad. Let the Nations Be Glad. The opening sentences of that book are as follows. Let me read them to you. He begins his book by saying, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, Piper says, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. I think Piper really has hit onto something. Worship is what should ultimately drive us. God is ultimate. And all that we do needs to be for His glory and His glory alone. We arrive this morning at our final sermon in this series on the millennium, not the final sermon on things to come, sorry. There are two more, Lord willing, to finish that. But this is our fourth and final one on the topic of the millennium. The millennium, the thousand year rule of Christ, Messiah King here on earth, the long anticipated, long prophesied rule of Christ. And as we have been looking at this topic together, we noted there are three characteristics, really revolutionary characteristics of his future reign. And by looking at these characteristics, by examining these characteristics, by thinking on these characteristics, by allowing them to saturate and settle into our heart, our lives, the way we view the world both now and in the future is bound to change. We noted that the first revolutionary characteristic of Christ's millennium is that life will be fruitful. Life will be fruitful. And we spent a couple of weeks just exploring what that reality meant and and how we live in what can essentially be classified as an unfruitful world and how radically that world's going to change when Messiah sits on his throne. Life will be fruitful. We also noted last time that government will be righteous. And oh, how we long for a day and age when government is righteous. We arrive now at the third 
revolutionary characteristic of this future reign. And that is that worship will be universal. Worship will be universal. That which God seeks, that which God deserves, that which God requires, and that which God does not receive, for the most part, in this fallen world will be made right, and the worship of God will be a universal reality. Beloved, just like it is so revolutionary, so different to think of a fruitful world, just as it is so revolutionary, so different to think of a world in which government is righteous, it is equally revolutionary, it is equally startling, it is equally difficult to conceive of a world in which worship will now be universal. (laughs) Because sadly, we live in a world in which the name of God is most often taken upon the lips of crude men to punctuate their ignorant speech. But that will not always be. It will not always be. Worship will be universal. Let's look at what that means in some details together this morning. I've again produced for you and placed into your bulletin a rather thorough write-up of the things that we're going to be talking about. So it's there for your help. The universal worship of Jesus Christ, that which will characterize this radical kingdom, is manifest in three different ways that I want to look at with you this morning. Three different ways. I've laid them out for you. I've called them a kingdom of priests. I've called it Gentile worship, and I've called it Ezekiel's temple. And what I will do is we'll just look and necessarily briefly, but we'll look at those three aspects and together they will give us a picture of the universal worship of Jesus Christ. Let's start with some background. When Adam fell, when Adam fell in the garden, he plunged not only himself, but his race into ruin. He delivered the creation into the hands of the evil one. And that harsh taskmaster rules over this creation under the providence of God even now. Probably one of the most significant characteristics of that harsh and cruel rule is the practice of idolatry. The practice of idolatry. He has taken advantage of humanity's God-given need to worship, and he has substituted demonic deceptions. Oh, some appear to be sophisticated, various philosophical schemes of the materialists that you might encounter on a college campus, all the way to the crude and primitive worship of an animist Worshipping the very creation itself. The Apostle Paul is clear to tell us behind these things lie demons. One only needs to travel to the various parts of the world that are locked in this demonic idolatry to see the cruelty, the horror of it all. Beloved, the world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. The worship of the one true God is far from universal. It's against this backdrop of spiritual darkness that God has always had a people. He has always had a remnant The world is not entirely given over to blackness. God has reserved for himself a remnant of people who know him and worship him truly and speak of him to others. Long ago, it was men like Abraham or Melchizedek. But with the exodus, with the rescuing of the people of Israel out of the idolatry of Egypt and forming them into what we're told in In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, as a kingdom of priests, that God established a new way to tell the world of his glory and his splendor. Israel is God's 
favored nation. He chose them and he set them apart and he he gave them a law code by which they might approach him. And embodied in that reality is a manifold witness to the world of who God is. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 8. I think these are astounding verses tucked away here. If you're using a pew Bible, page 188. These are astounding verses tucked away in the early part of Deuteronomy. And they speak about the reality that the nation of Israel, drawn out of Egypt, given God's holy law, was to have a profound effect upon the world. They were indeed a kingdom of priests. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Moses writes, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Wow. The nations of the earth were to see the people of Israel set apart unto God with a special law code by which they related to the God of the universe. And as they were to observe that nation, they were to conclude that that these were the servants of the Most High God. They knew the one and true Creator God of all things, and they were rightly related to Him. It was to draw them. It was to appeal to them. It was to proclaim to them the glories of God. Beloved, it was God's design to plant the nation of Israel, the kingdom of priests, into the very crossroads of the world. It was God's plan, God's design to place them in the land of Israel that lies on the major trade routes from the east into the breadbasket of the ancient world, Egypt. And as the peoples and traders came back and forth through the land of Israel, they were to encounter God's missionary people. Judaism, the religion established by God and embodied in the Mosaic Code, was a come and see religion. It was a come and see. As the people came, they were to see the glory of God. And nowhere was the glory of God, listen to this, nowhere was the glory of God put on greater display than in Solomon's great temple. From all over the world, they would come to see the temple of this great God. But we know Israel failed miserably as a missionary people, don't we? Instead of converting the pagan world, Israel herself succumbed to their paganism. She herself adopted their idolatry. Instead of being the light in the darkness, the light was overcome by the darkness. And that unbelief and darkness reached its zenith when they said, we have no king but Caesar. Well then, what shall I do with Jesus, your Messiah? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they rejected and killed the Holy One of God. Because of their hardness of heart, because of their wicked and wretched refusal to be whom God had set them to be, to preach the message that God had given them to preach, to live in the way that He had established for them to live, to fail to be the kingdom of priests that He had said they were, God evicted them from the land. 
cast them out. No longer would they be his missionary people. Blinded now in unbelief and hardness of heart. The Apostle Paul says that even now at the reading of Moses, a veil lies over their eyes. They cannot see the truth of their own scriptures. And God transferred the responsibility of a missionary people from the nation of Israel to the church of Jesus Christ. We now are a kingdom of priests. We are the chosen people. We are the ones no longer to come and see, but to go and tell. Go into all the world and make disciples. We have no temple for them to come and see. We have no elaborate law code by which one is related to God. We now have a simple gospel message for which we are to take to the ends of the earth. And as Piper says, we take it there, not because that is the end in and of itself, but it is the means to the end, which is the glorious worship of God from one end of this globe to the other. But is Israel cast aside forever? Has she fallen never to be recovered? Is her blindness enduring to the end? Is the judgment that has come on her final? Is there no hope for God's chosen people? The Apostle Paul says, May it never be. May it never be. Yes, there is a future for Israel. Once again, someday, Israel will be who she was designed to be. She will be the kingdom of priests. And that will be in Messiah's kingdom. That will be in Messiah's kingdom. Turn to the right with me to to Isaiah chapter 61. Page 745, Isaiah 61, verse 6. By necessity, we cannot look at all these verses. I'll, I'll pick out a few as we go. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 6. Isaiah is writing here to the people in the midst of their idolatry. And he's saying judgment is coming. Babylon was soon to sweep you away. But this is the section of the prophecy of Isaiah, which is the hope section. This is the section that looks to the future and says, Israel, there is something out there for you. Verse, 61, uh, verse 6 in chapter 61. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. O Israel, not today. You are not the priests of God today. But someday, someday you will be the priests of God. You will fulfill that which for what you were called. You will be the kingdom of priests that God had always intended you to be. In fact, turn to the right to the prophet Zechariah. Chapter 8, page 945. Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 20. Oh, beloved, how much poorer we would be without the prophet Zechariah. He fills in so many important details for us. By the way, Zechariah is what's called a post-exilic prophet. That is, he wrote his prophecies after the return of the people from the Babylonian captivity. And he's still looking for a future. What that says is that what the prophet spoke of was not fulfilled in the return from the Babylonian captivity. It is still future to the nation. Zechariah chapter 8 And beginning in verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities and the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Wow. Someday. Someday. 
they will come and they will grab on to the, to the hem of the garment of the chosen people of Israel and say, take me to your God. A kingdom of priests. Beyond that, worship in Messiah's kingdom will be universal because it will include Gentile worship. It will be universal because Israel will fulfill her role as a kingdom of priests. It will be universal because it will include Gentile worship. Beloved, the vast majority of the people of this world are Gentiles. And they are locked in spiritual darkness. They are idol worshipers. But it has always been God's purpose. Listen to me. Always been God's purpose for Gentiles to join with his chosen people, the people of Israel, and surround his throne with true worship. The prophets are replete with these statements. Let's begin back in Genesis. We'll go that far. Genesis chapter 12, page 11. All the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. For there it was in the heart and mind of God. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, page 11. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through the lineage of of Abraham, It has always been God's intention that blessing would flow out through Abraham and his people to the Gentiles. Turn to the right to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, page 563. Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the families of the nations will worship before you. Continue to the right, Psalm 47, page 578. Psalm 47 in verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph or voice of joy. We've turned it into a praise song that we love to sing, don't we? It's celebrating the reality that the peoples of the earth will clap their hands and worship God. Psalm 86, verse 9. Page 603. Psalm 86 and verse 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 3. Isaiah 60 and verse 3, page 743. The prophet writes, Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 3, and nations will come to your light. He's talking about Messiah and kings to the brightness of your rising. Beloved, this is just a few samples. It is all over the Old Testament. It has always been God's intention. It has always been God's plan that the nations, the Gentiles, the peoples of the earth will worship the one true God. Flip back to your left to Psalm 90, 96. Psalm 96. What a great psalm. 
Page 609. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols or fakes. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe or give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established and it will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exalt and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness wow let the nations rejoice let the nations rejoice you know what's really fascinating is that the words for psalm 96 appear in first chronicles 16 First Chronicles 16. They were written by the sons of Asaph. Those musicians appointed by David at the time that he was bringing the ark into his capital city 3,000 years ago. They were penned to be part of the worship of Israel. First Chronicles 16. Don't turn there, but you can turn later and, and find. You will find this psalm almost verbatim. It's the people of Israel under the great shepherd king David brought the Ark of the Covenant into his capital city. The musicians of it, that he had appointed penned the words to this great song. And this song is all about the nations worshiping God. David got it. David got it. It looks forward in time. It anticipates Messiah's kingdom. It looks forward to the time when Satan is imprisoned, when his world system has been destroyed, when true worship will be among the nations. You know, tucked away in the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, we won't look there, but, but tucked away in that last prophet of the Old Testament, in chapter 1 and verse 11, he speaks of redeemed Gentiles all over the world regularly offering their worship to God. Beyond that, the prophet Zechariah, and back to our friend, we'll see him again, Zechariah, this time chapter 14, page 950. Time we're done this series, if you don't know where Zechariah is, I'm hoping your Bible falls open to it. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16. Zechariah 14 and verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Huh. Interesting, huh? Malachi says that among the redeemed Gentiles, there will be regular, spontaneous worship. Zechariah tells us that not only will there be regular and spontaneous worship, but there will also be 
mandated and authorized worship among the the nations, the Gentile nations of the world in Messiah's kingdom. They must come annually to Jerusalem. They must come. Because they have been designed to worship. Beloved, it's radical. It is radical. Worldwide Gentile worship. When the majority of the world now remains locked in idolatry. What a transformation this will be. And finally. Worldwide worship will be manifest through Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel's temple. You know, of all of the topics of prophecy, this is the one I think that is most difficult for people to swallow. I acknowledge that. This is a difficult topic. But this is a place where we need to let the Word of God rule. Let the Word of God speak. And let us humble our hearts and receive what it has to say. Ezekiel's greatest failure as God's people was her unwillingness to worship him correctly. They were to worship God in the spirit of holiness. The whole Mosaic code was designed to be the means by which they could enter into the presence of God. In the millennial kingdom, beloved, when Messiah comes, when he establishes his earthly kingdom, Israel will have a second chance. Israel will have a second chance. She will be able to demonstrate that she is truly redeemed by entering into his presence according to his code. And that worship will take place in Ezekiel's temple. Turn to your left to Ezekiel chapter 40. Page 869. Nine chapters. Nine chapters. Beginning in chapter 40 and running all the way through chapter 48 of the prophecy of Ezekiel. Nine chapters present a very detailed vision given by God to the prophet Ezekiel. In this detailed prophecy appear a temple, a priesthood, a sacrificial system, and a national homeland. All bound up in these nine chapters. Many commentators do not know what to do with the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. In fact, many of the older and reformed commentators, they would pass over these chapters because they have no idea what they mean. They don't fit their scheme. Some would say that, well, it's a a historical look at the nation of Israel somehow, that the temple there is, is one of the historical temples in the nation's history. That's some sort of retrogressive view of history that the prophet has laid out for us. Others recognizing the foolishness of such statements go to the other extreme and they say, no, what we really have here is a massive allegorical picture of heaven. Chapters 40 through 48, nine chapter allegory laying out heaven for us. Sounds compelling. Until the problem is you start to deal with the details and nobody knows what any of them mean. Nine chapters and nobody knows what it means. Beyond that, take a look at verse 4. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, And give attention to all that I am going to show you. 
For you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. (laughs) Ezekiel, I'm going to show you something. And I want you to record it in detail. I want you to pay attention. I want you to listen carefully. And I want you to relate it to the nation of Israel. What that means, beloved, is that the details here mean something. It's not just one big, massive allegory. Well, yeah, it's just a vision of heaven. Well, what does it mean when they start measuring things? I don't know. No, it actually does mean something. Measurements really do mean something. Ezekiel is to pay close attention here. And so this vision begins to unfold with a description of a temple. Description of a temple. A temple whose dimensions and paraphernalia, that is the the accoutrements of the temple, the items in the temple, do not match Solomon's temple. Do not match Zerubbabel's temple and the return of the exiles. Do not match Herod's temple. In fact, match no historical temple in the nation's history anywhere. Beyond that, earlier in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapters 8 through 11, he is given a vision of the Shekinah glory of God leaving Solomon's temple because of idolatry. And we know historically it never returned. It never returned. Yet here in chapter 43, verses 1 through 12, Ezekiel is shown a vision of the return of the Shekinah glory of God. All the way to verse 7. Where he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. This will be Messiah's throne room. When Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom, he will enter into Ezekiel's great temple and he will establish it as his throne room. The glory of God will once again Inhabit the temple of his people. Beyond that, beginning in chapter 44, Ezekiel is given not just a vision of the future temple, but he's he's given a vision of the future priesthood. And there in these, in this chapter, He's told that the former priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is going to be set aside because they've been unfaithful to God. They're going to be now just performing administrative duties, but those that come near to minister to God will now be the faithful sons of the priest Zadok. The priesthood is going to be moved. It's going to be changed. It's going to be transformed. New temple, new priesthood. And then probably the one that is most difficult for people, a sacrificial system. A sacrificial system. According to the prophet, the people will once again reinstitute a sacrificial system. A system in which there will be burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and grain offerings. And all of that seems like a direct contradiction to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Come on, be honest with me. This is the one that troubles you the most. How can it be if Christ is the once and for all sacrifice, which we know he is, how can it be there is a reestablishment of a sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom? How can that be? Well, I'm glad you asked. I will see if I can answer your question. Let's just make a few observations here. First, first observation, Ezekiel is not the only prophet to write of a renewed sacrificial system. It's not just Ezekiel who writes about that. I've given you a number of references here, but let me just turn you back to your left to Jeremiah chapter 33, page 792. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 15. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 15. 
in those days and at that time. Warning, 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 warning. Okay, Textual clue. You are looking into the future. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, and he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them. Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. But thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night shall not stand and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. How sure is God to establishing David's throne with a descendant to sit on that throne in Jerusalem? He's so sure that he's willing to wager that the sun comes up and sets according to a fixed pattern. That he's willing to wager the movement of the celestial bodies and say, if those things fall out of alignment, then my promise to David will not come true. But beloved, do not miss that tucked in there with the promise to David is the promise of a Levitical priesthood too. A Levitical priesthood. Not just Ezekiel looks forward to a time of future sacrifice. Many of the prophets do. Beyond that, beyond that, it is critical to remember something about Ezekiel himself. Ezekiel was a priest. Ezekiel was a priest, chapter 1, verse 11, or excuse me, verse 3. Ezekiel was a priest. So what? Well, this. As a priest, he was formally trained in the Mosaic legislation. He would have known every intricacy, every detail of the Mosaic system and all of its sacrifices. He had been trained as a priest. Therefore, the things that he leaves out are sometimes as important as the things he puts in to his prophecy. When Ezekiel leaves something out, details he's left out, when compared to the Mosaic Code, lights should go on for us and we should say, whoa, we better pay attention to this. How come they didn't include that? It can't be by oversight. This man's a trained priest. So notice here what is absent from his prophecy. When he speaks about the work of the priests in chapter 43, absent are the day of atonement. No day of atonement in Messiah's kingdom. Absent is the Ark of the Covenant. No Ark of a Covenant in Messiah's kingdom. Absent is the Feast of Pentecost. No Feast of Pentecost in Messiah's kingdom. Absent is the high priest. No high priest in Messiah's kingdom. Why? The answer, the short answer is they've all been fulfilled in Christ. Christ has fulfilled these shadows, these symbols, these things that pointed forward to him. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and there is no longer a need for them. According to the prophet, they will continue to celebrate Passover. They will continue to celebrate unleavened bread 
which is the picture of the purging of sin from the nation. They will continue to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, which is a feast that commemorates God's dwelling with his people. They will continue to celebrate feasts that speak to and point up to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The atoning work of Christ. So these sacrifices, what are, what are they all about? What are they all about? Well, let me suggest this to you. We took the Lord's table together this morning, didn't we? What's all that about? What was the purpose of us doing that? Do this in remembrance of me. It points back to what Christ has done. In the same way, in the same way in Messiah's kingdom, the sacrificial system, the the shedding of the blood of innocent animals will point back to what Christ has done. Think about it this way. When Messiah rules, Satan is imprisoned. Isn't that right? Revelation 20. He's bound in prison. His world system has been overthrown. The wicked have been judged and sent off. All that enter into Messiah's kingdom are either those in glorified bodies or those who are redeemed and still in human bodies. Sin will be significantly tamped down. Righteousness will prevail. Holiness will be common, like a fry pan. Do you remember that? In a world in which holiness is like a fry pan, It would be easy to underestimate the horror and wickedness of sin. But when one goes to the temple and sees an innocent animal with their throat cut and their blood pouring out, one will be reminded that the wages of sin is death. Beloved, the wages of sin is always death and will be always death. The sacrifices will point back to the one who died. When they enter into that temple, when they offer the sacrifice, when the blood is spilled, the people will remember Jesus Christ redeemed us from our sin. It will be a very powerful teaching tool on the wickedness of sin. By the way, just to remind you, it will not take away sin. But that's okay because the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament never took away sin either. Isn't that true? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. The death of an animal never took away sin. It is only the death of Christ that takes away sin. It's always been that way and it always will be that way. I'm convinced there's, these are memorials. These are memorials sacrifice for a redeemed people to remember what their king has done and, and how amazing that will be when Christ sits there on his throne in the temple with the nail holes still in his hands, with a hole in his side from the Roman spear. And the people come in with the, with the squalling animal that senses death and smells blood. And there it's innocent blood is poured out and the worshipers remember Christ did that for me. What about you and I? The glorified believers, the church of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament saint that are raised to enter into Messiah's kingdom and glorified bodies incapable of sin. What about us? Do we offer sacrifices? Here's where I have to get a little tentative with you. So here's where I'm at right now as I've thought about it. I think that the glorified Jewish believers, the Old Testament saints, yes, I think they will. I think they will. As a memorial, as an act of worship to Christ. I think that the church of Jesus Christ, you and I, could if we chose to. I know that the Gentile nations 
that are redeemed but not glorified must come and do it. Zechariah 14 tells me that, right? If they don't come and offer the feast, no rain falls on their land. I think, I think we continue to celebrate the Lord's table, beloved. That's what I think we do. I think we will continue to partake of the bread and the wine in Messiah's kingdom as a memorial, as a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And I think we will do it for a thousand years. A thousand years. What do we make of all of this? What do we make of all of this? I have three, three applications for you this morning. I'll give them to you just really quickly. Here they are. Number one. Number one. God is interested in worship. God is first and foremost interested in your worship, true worship. If you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, if he is not your personal savior, then you are not able to give God the worship that he requires. John chapter four, God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God is the seeker and he is seeking those who will worship him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not doing that this morning, then your worship is unacceptable to God. Two. Missions. Missions is worship. Proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is worship. Planting churches is worship. Going to the other side of the globe to bring the gospel to the Gentiles is worship. Going across the street and speaking to your neighbor who does not know Jesus Christ is worship. And beloved, if we are not doing these things, our worship is truncated. It's truncated. It's truncated. 